things went sour. It went uh, down and down. So it gave me lots of stress because I put a big amount of my personal wealth in it. I think it was yeah, over a half or something. So I was closely watching it. First with the emotion of greed and then the emotion of fear. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk, but to win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for our weekly free Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk and create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Pim Van Fleet. Pim, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I'm ready to go. <laughs> <laughs> Let me introduce you to the audience. Pim is head of conservative equities and chief quant strategist at Rabico. He is responsible for a wide range of global, regional, and sustainable low volatility strategies. He specializes in low volatility investing, asset pricing, and quantitative finance. He's the author of numerous academic research papers and various books. Pim, take a minute and tell us about the unique value that you are bringing to this wonderful world. Thanks for having me, Andrew. I was really looking forward to this. Also, the name of the show is, is awesome with Otto von Bismarck, a wise man learns from others' mistakes. Mm. So what I'm trying to bring to the world is bring simplicity and translate academic scientific insights to basically normal people. So to translate that and to have an impact also by doing something with this research insights in actual trading and managing portfolios, which we currently do multi-billion. Mm. Maybe you could just tell us about your client base and kind of what's the size of your assets under management and what you guys are doing. Yeah, that's good. So at Rubeco, my, uh, the company I work for, it's based in the Netherlands. It's 96 years old, so we're getting close to 100. Pure play asset management based in Rotterdam. So Rotterdam's the row from Robico stands for Rotterdam. Mm -hmm. We serve clients all over the world because in the Netherlands, if you step in your car, in one hour, you're abroad. So we are international investors serving in international client base, about more than 70 billion. We manage with a large team of researchers, portfolio managers, and client researchers to clients in Asia as well, Europe and North America. Mm. I remember I was telling you before we turned on the recorder that I went there as an analyst, a sell-side analyst out of Bangkok in probably 1995 or so. And I remember, what I remember was kind of a, a modern style standalone building in a parking lot that we arrived in. And it was really kind of a really unique looking experience. It was not like, like a bank or something like that. And it was a really interesting environment. What's it like these days there? Yeah. So that's a beautiful building. It's still uh, up in Rotterdam. We moved closer to central station. So now we're only at 20 minutes from the airport by train. So the airport is south of Amsterdam. Mm. So very convenient. And it's a very light building, more Scandinavian look, lots of glass, lots of space. Yeah. The previous building was more vertical and this one is, is more uh, horizontal. So mm. much more room for cooperation. Mm. But we do have a history of nice uh, buildings. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about what you are doing these days. You know, what's, what's hot in your, in your space? Yeah. So I'm a quant, quant portfolio manager, also uh, one leg in academia. So I also like to to continue to do research, to uh, join the debate. 
what's going on a lot. So academic factor-based investing has become accepted. When I joined my PhD, it was still at its infancy, but due to the rise of computer power, dissemination of research, more, more people getting CFAs, getting to know about what the academics are writing about factor premiums. So that has really become mature and big. And in particular, low-risk investing, that's a special animal. And that's where I'm specialized in. So I basically dedicated my career to a very basic thing, finding that is that risk and return on the stock market and other markets are not related. And that's a big puzzle. And uh, yeah, I mean, that goes against everything that we learn in the world of finance is that those are in fact directly related. And what you're exploiting or you're you know, you're studying and applying is that there's, uh, tell us, tell us what you found in, in some of your research and, and your book and, and that type of stuff. Yeah. So when I was at uh, university, my bachelor's, I started to read my first academic articles. One of them was by uh, an American professor, Robert Hogan, who basically laid out that if you, if you select low risk stocks, you get a high return. Mm. And then Pharma French also in the famous seminal 92 paper wrote, that's the CAPM is a fit empirical failure. So uh, low beta stocks have high risk adjusted returns. And I was so uh, puzzled by that. I was like, wow, how can this be? And ever since then, I've been working on this in my master's, in my PhD, where I really try to get my head around, like, how, how can this be? Is the model wrong? Are the investors wrong? What's up? And yeah, at this moment in my life, I can say, yeah, you can profit from this, this market anomaly. And you know, one of the things from my experience in finance is that people, you know, wrongly call volatility risk. And so a lot of times they're saying, you know, I, I have more risk in this particular stock or that, when in fact, what they're saying is I have more volatility. And of course, we would prefer a stock that kind of goes straight up versus one that goes up and down a lot, and they end up at the same place. Maybe you can explain from your deeper experience than mine about what, what really is risk and is there a difference between risk and volatility? Yes, good one. So when I started my PhD, this was exactly the thesis I was working on. I was My thesis was, could it be that this flat relation between risk and return is due to how we measure and define risk? Because traditionally, we equate volatility and systematic volatility, which is beta, with risk. However, in practice, people are loss averse. They don't like fat tails, so uh, negative outcomes. And returns of stocks are also not normally distributed. So maybe we should change the model, which I did. So I worked on extensions of the capital asset pricing model, worked on modeling downside risk using models from the 70s. These were developed, applying them to these anomalies and factors to see whether these alphas were maybe a compensation for downside risk. And maybe that's why this, this puzzle exists. The answer to that was that that's not the case. So if you change volatility for downside volatility, you still find this anomalous pattern. So this is not the reason why this pattern exists. Results do get, in fact, a bit better. So if you look at more downside risk measures, more longer time horizon, then yeah, you still cannot explain why those stocks which have a lower downside risk have such a good long-term compounded return. I remember doing some internal work 
trying to figure out a way, and you probably have done this much better than I have, was trying to, I was trying to figure out a way to try to understand like what's more important, losing less or gaining more. Like when you look at a trajectory of a returns over a long period of time, you know, is it protecting the downside or does that put you in a position where you don't capture the upside? And I'm curious about what you what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, when you look at low hole stocks, they tend to have especially a good downside protection, whereas on the upside, they are pretty good. So there's a skew in it. So mm. you have, when you lower your volatility, you especially lower your downside volatility. And that's the reason why they, on a long-term basis, beat everything else. I use the metaphor of the hare and the, and the tortoise. And the hare goes quick. These are high volatile stocks. The thing is, if you lose your money once, like with minus 100%, then you're out. Mm. And with low volatility by yeah, protecting your downside and then participating okay on the upside, that's how you win in the long run. So winning by not losing. Often when people talk about investing, they talk about compounding and then they think about compounding upwards. Eh? If you double every year, it, it explodes. Mm. But compounding works two ways. And yeah. the problem with downside is every entrepreneur knows if you have your money and you lose all of it, yeah, you're out. You cannot right. grow back again. So it's more important to protect your downside and then keeping your upside okay. That's really the formula for long-term winning. Let's let's do a hypothetical example to try to simplify this maybe. When my nieces were 18 back in America, I would fly back from Thailand and I would bring $3,000 in my pocket and give them a gift as a present for graduating high school. And then I said, but you can't spend it. We're going to set up an account at Vanguard. And we set up an account and they own VT fund. So they own basically 9,000 stocks across the world. And I said, don't even think about this. Just every month contribute, never sell. And 40 years from now, when I'm long gone, you can thank me. And now if we got confused along the way and went through an emotional roller coaster of the ups and downs of that strategy, we may decide, oh crap, we got to get out now. We're going to get back in later. But if they know nothing and they just kept contributing and let that grow over a long time, to me, that seems like the number one best thing to do. Is there something better to do than that? You're describing something which is also evidence-based and scientific. The market is pretty efficient. That's one. So that's why you should diversify and hold the broad market. And the second is the less you look, the higher utility is. So if you have an evaluation horizon of like three years, so you look every three years or every year, it increases your happiness, your utility. And also you will face less risk because stocks in the long run have lower risk than in the very short term. So mm. that sounds like yeah, very good scientifically evidence-based way to do it. It can be improved. The problem with the market is it's not really efficient. It's nearly efficient. So if you buy the whole market, you also buy speculative parts of the market, mm -hmm. which is the very volatile yeah, option-like stocks. These stocks are too expensive because yeah, they have some certain attraction, a fatal attraction, you could right. even say. And if you move away from the markets and you bring your portfolio still diversified more to the low risk, the boring part of the markets so are cutting out these high volatile speculative stocks, your niches could do even better also in the long run. But that's a sort of small enhancement 
in the basis a very good, prudent investment strategy. And is that the type of strategy that you're offering clients? Yeah, that's the philosophy behind the products I offer. Now, maybe to, to explain it a, a bit more. So the low volatility stocks outperform the high volatility stocks. That's mm -hmm. an empirical fact. It's proven in the US stock market. I recently did a research to back, going back to the 19th century, really 1866. Also back then, boring low vol stocks outperformed the risky ones. You also see it in China and Asia, any markets you test. So the evidence is really strong. For those interested, you can also check this. If you do a Google search on low volatility, go to Wikipedia. You can read all about it. Mm. I also decided to write a book about it, more for the layman. So maybe also for your audience, this might be interested. interesting. It is in six languages. So it is called High Returns from Low Risk. And I'm showing it now to the camera. Yep. But on the front of it, there's a, a turtoise, which mm -hmm. is sort of a metaphor for low risk investing. And I decided to write this to my dad, who is an investor and an entrepreneur, and to really explain in simple language how you can take academic insights and translate them into a real-life strategy. So I'll have the links in the show notes to the book so people can check it out. I wonder, one question I have about risk that I've always kind of been baffled about is that for me, like I'm not, I'm not an, I don't go on an emotional roller coaster in the stock market. Cause I know I learned a long time ago not to get on that ride, you know, like, yeah. so I don't feel a lot of pressure and I know that you're going to underperform periods of time. And so I'm not like, I, I had a call, a strategy call the other night and they said, commodities underperforming right now and you're overweight commodities. What are you going to do? And I said, nothing because my next rebalance where I set every quarter and that's when I look at it, it's coming up in the end of February, early March, and then I'll look at it. And so the point that I'm, I wanted to ask you though, is that I wonder if we're doing people a disservice by talking about their emotional aspect, right? So when we talk about well, when the market's going to be really terrible, what you're going to do is you're going to take your money out or you're going to make a mistake because you're going to be on an emotional roller coaster. And therefore, we have to somehow reduce your risk so that during that time, you have less of a drawdown. And really what we should be telling them is, you know, you shouldn't freak out at that time, but maybe we just give up on that and we just tell them, look, here's the situation. I'm just curious, where where do you fall on how to help the client? Yeah, it's a good one. So emotions are usually of great help, but in investing often not. The question is, how can you protect yourself from them, especially the ones which are hurting your uh, performance? So yeah, I'm a quant portfolio manager, as I said in the beginning. So mm -hmm. we use a rules-based process. So we find patterns, we lay down rules. So one rule is buy the stocks which have a low volatility and do not buy the ones which have a high volatility. That's what you can implement on a rules-based basis. As you say, regular updating, like a monthly or a quarterly rebalance. And then you take all the emotions out because mm. you follow the rules, you think about it. It's very rational, evidence-based way of investing. So that's a way... That's why I love quant investing, because if I had to do it myself, I would be at night thinking, hmm, should I buy Tesla or Apple or should I, I should have sold uh, material stocks? And Let's it, say it's, it's story-based. It's to stick to your process, yeah. It, it, As opposed it, it, it to process-based. So that's why I really respect stock pickers who are successful, because yeah. they can manage their emotions yeah. very well. 
Yeah, then your question is about clients. So what we do is we invest in education a lot. So explaining our clients what quant strategy, our quant strategy is doing and what it's mm -hmm. not to be doing, what to expect, what not to expect. And then before they become a client, really explain them the process, the philosophy, so that they know what they're doing. And then during yeah, the ride, you're more of a coach uh, where you yeah, explain performance. Often our clients are fiduciary managers, so they manage money on behalf of other clients. Mm. So you should also help them give lines of how they explain to their clients. So I mentioned the book. That's one thing we did to really bring this philosophy out. But we also write academic and white papers to really explain the things we're doing in our strategies, what to expect and what to expect. Mm. But yeah, keeping your emotions tight, that's if you can manage that, yeah, you can make a lot of money. Mm -hmm. especially avoiding losing money, which is in the end good for your return. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I have one last thing I want to talk about with you since I've got an expert like yourself on the line. It was actually during the time I was working on my PhD in China. So I was in China, Thailand, traveling around, and I had two things kind of happen at the same time. I read an academic paper that was talking about volatility and, and reducing risk or let's say volatility. And they were saying, oh, the research is wrong. In fact, you need a hundred stocks to, to reduce terminal volatility, the volatility of the outcome at the end of let's say 10, 20, 30 years. And, you know, you see these, I'm, I'm holding my hand up like a fan diagram of all these potential outcomes and I just thought, you know, that's just so impractical. And then I had another case where I was asked to go speak in the Philippines. And I I was speaking about my book, which is a simple book called How to Start Building Your Wealth, Investing in the Stock Market. And it's basically what I told you about my nieces. So I went to the Philippines. It was 2,000 young students in the audience. And I got up on the stage for three hours. And But I, I realized I had a problem. You know, there are no ETFs and diversified, you know, global exposure in it. And then the market is so expensive in many of these countries where trading fees are really high and all of that. And then these guys were not finance students. They didn't want to like learn how to pick stocks. And I thought, I really don't have any good advice. But then I thought back to this paper and then I was thinking, how could I help these guys? And I thought, I wonder if, why don't we test out randomly selecting 10 stocks out of the Philippines market? Because we know the brokers have been commoditized. So we know that the cost of transactions at a broker is actually pretty low for stocks. What if we had them randomly pick 10 stocks? And then I created like a fan diagram using the, the stock market to try to understand what the outcomes would be. The problem is, is that you end up with some really extreme negative outcomes that are below, you know, pretty bad. If you're the unlucky one out of a thousand that picked the one that just went all the way down. So then I asked the question, okay, what would happen if I combined a stop loss into that, knowing that these guys don't know anything? So they're going to have 10 random stocks and put in stop losses for 20%, 25%, 30%. And what I found from that was it truncated the downside and it actually expanded the upside. And then I thought to myself, well, maybe for a beginner that doesn't have the stock picking skills and doesn't have the resources like your funds, yep. maybe that would be a strategy. I'm just curious what your thoughts are on that the whole thought process I was going through with that. Yeah, one is the diversification. So when, once you buy one stock or two or three, it really starts to help. Mm. So And then usually you don't need thousands, but you get the quick wins first. So every stock you add, each first step goes quickest. The second is stop losses. Academically, there has been this has been investigated and why it works. 
And one of the things is that you're then long momentum. So you sell your losers, you profit from underreaction due to underreaction momentum works. So a stop loss rule is really something for a layman with a broker account to get exposure to yeah, momentum, which is a proven academic factor, which gives you higher returns. So that's how you can improve your terminal wealth. Mm. Yeah. So that's that's how I look at these two examples. Which would also allow you to have a smaller portfolio size as opposed to having to get diversification through 50 stocks. You could go down to maybe 10 or 15. What is your thought on that? Yeah, if you do it smartly, so you suppose you have 10 sectors, you pick from each sector a representative stock. Good point. Yeah, and then you can do it smartly with the tools you have, of course, yeah. if there's no ETFs, if there's no funds available. This is a way to do it. And it's like the 80-20 rule. So if you do it like this, you know, you have 20 stocks from 10 sectors, yeah, then you basically get to 80-90% of the diversification potential you might achieve. So good which, enough. Which works well in the US market, but in the Philippines, where there's only where there's only 40 list, uh, you know, large and liquid stocks, it raises so many other, you know, so I ended up doing it randomly. But I think if we have the potential to do that random selection within sectors, it seems like that's that's the optimum way. Yeah, and then some Philippine stocks might have more international exposure, you know, and then you pick them. Mm -hmm. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's I'm fascinated to learn what you're doing, and it sounds interesting, and you've answered some questions that I've been taking some notes on. So now it's time to share your worst investment ever, and since no one goes into their worst investment thinking it will be, tell us a bit about the circumstances leading up to it, and then tell us your story. Yeah, thanks. My story about, so I thought about this, and it's... It's good to show your uh, the lessons you learned. So for me, I had to go back in history. I have been fascinated with money saving ever since I was a small kid. Like I said, my father is an entrepreneur. We had a family business. I was sometimes working. I was saving, made some money, put it on my uh, piggy account, made some good interest. I learned about the compounding of interest, fascinating. You know, that's if you get 10% interest, 10 and then due to magic, more money appears. So I was, I was still young. I remember that. Then I decided to go into a mutual bond fund. So instead of interest rates on my saving accounts, I went into a fund. I did this together with my dad. He also bought some. And I was like, wow, now I go from 6 to 8% yield. Back then it was... In the 90s. So this was a few years before you visited the Netherlands. I was yes. then a teenager. What then happened was that in the 90s, stock market became more and more popular. The newspapers started to write more about it. And I was getting a bit bored by, by my mutual funds in bonds because I looked up the price every day, wanted to go up, of course, and then it was flat or it went up 10 cents or down 10 cents. It was just very low, volatile, boring. So and i was a young eager kid and i thought i could be smarter than that and then i started to follow the news and then my eye felt on a dutch aircraft manufacturer that was trading for 13 guilders so that's roughly euros mm -hmm. roughly dollars so it was trading at 13 and i was looking up the price and i saw it was 40 a couple of years before so it really went down it was a cheap buy it was in the news a lot because it had problems. It was partly bought by DESA, so that's a German conglomerate. 
they were investing in it and the aircrafts were really good products. So they were basically building 100 seaters, 150 seaters. So below Airbus and, and Boeing. Although the production base was a bit high. So in Europe back then, the currency was strong, the Gilder, and so the costs were too high. Still, I was like, yeah, this stock is in the news. It went down. It was very volatile. I thought, let's let's do it. My advisor at the bank said, don't do one stock. It's just if you go equities, do it in a fund. But of course, I was a bit overconfident because I thought, <laughs> this can only go up. It's an airplane. So usually they go up, airplane company. Then things went sour. It went down and down. So it gave me lots of stress because I put a big amount of my personal wealth in it. I think it was yeah, over half or something. So I was closely watching it. First with the emotion of greed and then the emotion of fear. So exactly the roller coaster as you refer to. It was a wild ride and it ended up with yeah, the stock went bankrupt. Luckily, I was able to, to get out at three. So I basically lost 75%. I also described this episode in, in my book. And it's funny, Andrew, that when people read my book, they come back and they all have their own experience like this. So that's <laughs> also when you asked me to join this show, I thought I, thought I, I should join and tell this about this experience. Mm. It learned me a lot of things. So first, I was overconfident and overoptimistic. So I was not reading the information right. I was greedy. I thought it was once 40. So it will go back to 40. So I assume some sort of gravity law or something uh, going on. I also learned that compounding works two ways because if you lose 75% at a certain moment, I thought, should I buy more of it? And then, yeah, if you lose 75, you need yeah 400% to break even. So that's that's terrible. And I learned that risk, if you take risk on stock market, it's not rewarded like some sort of karma. Like normally when you work, you get a you get an income and that follows. If you take risk, I thought you get return, but that's... Mm. <laughs> That's different. It's it's not the case. And as I learned later on in my professional career, if any, there is a negative relation. So taking more risk will give you a lower return. And that's the story of my life. And I can tell you this was a big loss in my personal wealth. Some ego, of course. I also later on made other good investments. So I was not let losing out. But the money I lost, it was every penny worth in lessons learned. Mm. Especially because I learned it at a young age. Yeah, that's key. Maybe I'll share a couple of things I take away from this. The first one is that it's got to be like one of the first things that you do when you're in the world of finance and you're starting to invest is like you get caught into these super cheap stocks. Like this has come down a lot. And I think this is a great deal. And you feel like, you know, I'm really finding something unique here and I'm putting into practice, you know, some of these research principles. And it's an easy one to get sucked into. I like to remember what my mother always says is just because it's cheap doesn't mean you have to buy it. And she said that about when you go shopping, you know, just because something's on sale. And how many times have you gone out and you bought something and you think, I bought that because it was on sale of 30% and it doesn't actually fit me. And so that's kind of a big lesson that I take away and think about. And for the beginners out there, you know, that raises the second point, which is the diversification aspect, which your broker mentioned, you know, don't just buy one. Yeah. And I did an academic paper a long time ago. I called it 10 stocks are enough in Asia. And what I was just looking at is the relationship between risk and let's say volatility and return. And obviously, as you mentioned before, 
risk or volatility falls very quickly as you start adding stocks to a portfolio. And I would say that for the average individual investor, it's hard to come up with individual stock ideas. Like where are you going to find it? In the newspaper, from a broker, someone's going to tell you. So I always say that, you know, for an individual investor to have more than 10 stocks would be very hard to manage. And to have less than, let's say, five would mean way too much risk if any one went bad. And so I always say for the average individual, if you really, really want to invest in stocks individually on your own, then I would say invest in 10 and I would say put stop losses on it. But that's kind of one of my takeaways that I think about is that how often people get started in the stock market and go all in on one or two stocks. Anything you would add to those? Yeah, it's prudence and wise advice. In the funds we manage mostly for institutions, also in your region. So we have offices in Japan, Singapore, mm -hmm. Korea, China, Australia, but of course also in the rest of the world. In those funds we manage mostly for institutions, we apply also stop losses. So it's diversified strategies, buying low-vol stocks, getting momentum in, and that's the best way to have your sell discipline. So if mm -hmm. something goes down, sell it and don't think, oh, it's getting cheaper. So let's put more in. So that's really, stop losses really are difficult to overcome your own biases. And then we still add some value factors in as well. So income, mm -hmm. because in the long run, that's also a good predictor of returns. Right. So this mix is something which works best. So diversification, low fall, stop losses, momentum and, uh, income. and income value. That's what we call yeah, the conservative formula and which we apply with success and yeah. also, yeah, the interesting thing is also people listening to your podcast might be also both retail investors themselves, but also professional investors. Mm. And that's interesting also to see that some of the clients we meet, they manage, they are responsible for billions of state fund money or yeah. other insurance money, but they're also investors themselves. And then explaining those quant rules in simple ways could also help them better understand the more sophisticated quant strategies we run on behalf yeah. of our institutional clients. Yeah. Tim, it was one of the one things that I remember as a young analyst and then watching and listening. When I first started out, I really had no money. I came to Thailand with pretty much nothing. And so I got a job and I all I could think about was paying off my student loan debt. And then all I could think about is I'm just a poor kid from Cleveland, Ohio area, and nobody's taking care of me here. I've got to really hoard my cash. So it was a long time before I started investing. But what I what I saw was that the brokers that I worked with, even some of the fund managers, I can say that they were on a roller coaster ride with their own personal investments. And I always said, or throughout my years, if we measured the performance of the typical financial professional, it'd probably be significant underperformance because they're taking big bets and then they're taking care of their clients and then they're not focusing on their portfolios. And then next thing you know, boom. So that's kind of been my, my predictions. One of the questions I had, you know, how could a client walk away from your strategy? Let's say you go to do a presentation and there's a mandate there for X hundred millions, whatever that is. And you're, you're presenting against some other competitors. It's very hard for me to understand why someone would walk away from your type of strategy. Why would they? Well, okay, so do not invest in it. Yeah, I mean, like, why don't you yeah. manage half the money in the world, you know, type of thing with your strategy? Now, one thing, there is a, a limit to active investing. 
So we manage about more than 70 B, 70 billion. We can go up to, yeah, 150, 200. And at a certain moment, you start to impact your own prices. Mm. So that's, that's one reason. So alpha is always scarce. Yeah. So the, the quest for alpha. The second is not everybody knows about it. Many and also many investors face constraints. So many professional institutional investors have benchmark and leverage constraints. So they say, hey, I've got the MSCI world as a benchmark or MSCI all countries or any markets index. And then they say, yeah, if I lower the risk, so I go for a conservative low volatility strategy, I get lots of benchmark risk. So that's also fascinating that in the institutional world, many institutional investors face benchmark constraints, which is limiting them from not only walking away, yeah, not investing in this very appealing strategy. And that's where sometimes retail investors have an advantage because they have less benchmark problems or risks. They have other biases, but at mm. least this, this one they don't. And that can be an advantage. It's a huge factor in the financial world that people are tied to benchmarks and all of that. And it's it's dangerous sometimes for the retail investor that there's many people that won't take the risk because of the risk to their career and their reputation, as well as the rules that have been set by people that may not even know that much about finance and the, the idea of investing. And then all of a sudden you're kind of trapped in somewhat of a low return, high risk strategy. True. So benchmarks are a serious issue and it's getting yeah, worse because more and more money is invested not by or owned by end investors, but by asset managers. So agents who manage on behalf of, which is in one several ways good, but when it comes to benchmarks, it can be not a good thing. Mm. I wrote something recently that you cannot write. I know you can't write this. It's called 26 reasons why I'm anti ESG. And I went through a lot of stuff and I just see some stuff that I really don't, I don't like. And so I laid it out. But the one thing that I said is that theoretically ESG should be lower return, higher risk, only just because we're limiting the universe. Do you think that that, like, say, say there's, I look at VT fund and say, okay, it has 9,000 stocks. Let's say there's 5,000 investable stocks around the world that you could put sizable amount of money in, whatever that number is, or maybe it's a thousand. But if you put ESG constraints on it, you're naturally going to lower the potential for outperformance and potentially increase the risk. Where am I wrong in that? If the market is efficient, and you're putting constraints on your investable universe, then yeah, you're, you're, uh, it becomes a less efficient portfolio. Mm. But then yeah. that's on the premise of markets are efficient. So I believe that they're nearly efficient. So there is some way to, to do better, but in a very humble way, uh, or even quants can be too over-optimistic on, on, on their models or their skills. Mm. I believe we can. So in the strategies I run, we now have a statistical significance of the outperformance. So after 16 years, nearly 3% alpha with Incredible. a T-stat around above two. Mm. So yeah, that's pretty good. But still might have been luck. You never know. Yeah, when it comes to ESG, we, our research shows that some more proprietary variables linked to social. So if there's good governance, if, if mm. companies treat their employees right, that can be a source of alpha not priced in by the markets. That's another mm. thing. Mm. Then 
putting some ESG tails might be beneficial. So I'm a bit agnostic here. Right. So in the market, if markets are efficient, if you're on the Chicago school, mm. then you say just buy the whole bunch and anything else will not work. But then also factor investing can also be dismissed because I also exclude very risky stocks from the universe. And I do this for good reason because I've, I've found that markets are inefficient in that part of the market. That might also be true, might be true for some really bad ESG firms if they have some unpriced risks which the market is not pricing that's important here then it might be beneficial if the market is overpricing this that could also be the case that uh, market participants just love green green stocks and uh, they pay mm. a premium for that and then it can go the other way around so it all depends on whether the market is, is pricing the the risks of ESG right or not I have to follow up on something you just said, which was 3% outperformance. Hopefully, not, I, I can't remember how you said it, but like maybe not attributed to luck. And one of my questions I have to, to you that I, I don't know the answer at all, but we know that based upon some sorts of statistical distribution, that there will be some persistent winners and persistent losers. And therefore, we can say that there's a certain number of investors or funds end up 20 years from now, massively outperforming only yes. because of luck. Yep. Like there is an underlying randomness and variability. How do we determine if the person we're looking at is ending up 20 years out having outperformed, how do we differentiate between whether they were lucky or whether they did it through skill? Yeah, that's a good question. So that's also in finance, when I teach at university, how to distinguish between luck and skill. For that, for example, the fund I manage, the funds I manage, we had roughly 10% outperformance last year. Mm. And the year before, we had an outperformance of two. This year, we're looking at about minus five because markets are really up, it's lagging. So you're looking at plus 10, minus five, plus two. So what you then do is you risk adjust the series and then you can see whether the outperformance pattern is consistent and significant. Mm. So we now have 16 observations, of annual observations, but we also have yeah, more than 150 monthly observations. And then you can look at the consistency. And like I said, the, the T-stats, is above two of the risk-adjusted outperformance, mm. which means that there's more than 95% chance that it's not luck. But still, there's a couple of percent chance it could could be just a luck. So that's why I like to continue my job. I'm, I'm now in my 40s. Continue uh, to test it. And, and yeah, continue to test it and to see whether these academic insights really work out of sample. So for now, yes. But yeah, for me, the goal would be a, a T, T value of three then you're really at the 1% chance that it's not luck. Yeah. Mm. I'm sure you have some clients that just love to, or love all the stuff that you're doing and some others that are going, oh my God, that's way over my head. But for me, I really enjoyed our conversation. Let me ask you, based upon the story that you told and what you've continued to learn in your life, let's go back in time to imagine yourself as a, that young person just about to make this investment. What one action would you recommend our listeners take to avoid suffering the same fate? Yeah, maybe you, you wouldn't expect it, but I would still advise, especially if you're younger, to take some risk. Even if it doesn't give you a reward on investing, it gives you an opportunity to learn. So the younger you are, take some risk, 
controlled with the objective to learn because you get skin in the game. If you buy this one stock, you're going to read about it mm. a lot. So I wouldn't give myself other advice to, to do something really different. That would be my advice. Okay. Take, take risk, but then to learn instead of to become rich or something. Or to say, I'm never going to invest again, which some people do, right? When they get, when they get burnt. Yeah, that's, that's a pity. Don't just continue. Just yeah. pick up because I also continued and I yeah. uh, went on. Yeah, yeah. And look at you now. What what's a, a resource that you'd recommend for our listeners? Obviously, we're going to have your book in the show notes. Is there anything else that's valuable f- that you would recommend to the listeners? Yeah, read some good investment books. So the classics, I can recommend that. So the ones which are time tested, mm. not the one which is in the shop today, but really the the good old classics. Yeah, you know, like Benjamin Graham or mm. uh, the Intelligence Investor, or write, uh, read a bit about Buffett's philosophy. Yeah, the things you said, Andrew, about diversification. Yeah. I, w- I would start with those basic things. Yeah. Okay. Good advice. Last question: What is your number one goal for the next twelve months? My number one goal: living my dream with my family, my colleagues. That's my number one goal. Continue doing that. Yeah. And I was going to say continue because it seems like you are living your dream. You've found a place that you can do the type of research you like and the type of investing that fits your style and they appreciate it. So that's, that's what we're all looking for ultimately. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. That's a great example for the listeners. You know, one of the lessons that I've learned over my life is that when something's not right, you know, sometimes you got to get out of it and you'll find eventually that you'll find a place that's really suitable for you. And once you get there, appreciate it. All right, listeners, there you have it. Another story of loss to keep you winning. Remember, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. If you've not yet joined that mission, just go to myworstinvestmentever.com and join my free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter to reduce risk in your life. As we conclude, Pim, I want to thank you again for joining our mission. And on behalf of Ace Dots Academy, I hereby award you alumni status for turning your worst investment ever into your best teaching moment. Do you have any parting words for the audience? I really enjoyed it. And thanks for having me, Andrew. Well, I appreciate it and I enjoyed it too. And that's a wrap on another great story to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today. We added one more person to our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside.